everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you, hear your thoughts about the show, and anything else you'd like to talk about. So, Welcome in for another episode. This is episode 48, hard to believe, uh, for December 6th, 2021. And the title of today's show is The Week After Infamy. The Week After Infamy. We are going to talk about the anniversary of Pearl Harbor today, which happened, the Pearl Harbor attack, 80 years ago tomorrow. Uh, So we are going to talk a little bit about that today, but hopefully in a little bit of a different way than maybe you're used to. And the haiku that goes with that, kind of give you a hint of where we're going, goes like this. How we remember our trials and tribulations defines our present. How we remember our trials and tribulations defines our present. We're going to talk a little bit about how Pearl Harbor is remembered, what we tend to think about, what we tend not to. Hopefully give it a little bit more context of the time and uh, talk a little bit about it from a unique perspective, a little more personal one. So uh, before we do that, I'd like to make sure I thank again uh, the sponsor of this show, Airway Science for Kids. Uh, an organization, a nonprofit down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathways for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do that with a whole series of different programs, as well as facilitating relationships with companies, with uh, educational entities, with government entities uh, to help students discover more about who they are, to learn how to advocate for themselves and how to improve their own lives, that of their families and that of their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that they do at Airway Science for Kids, you can check them out at their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or you can reach out to them directly via email uh, using the address info at airwayscience.org. So thanks to them. All right, so we are going to continue. We've sort of been the last handful of weeks, really since the holiday season began, been talking a lot about, in different ways, holidays and commemorations, that type of thing. And And, of course, tomorrow, as I mentioned just a second ago, is the 80th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, uh, which brought the United States into World War II. Uh, And uh, because of that and because of how the American role in World War II ended up shaping that conflict in the world after that, it's safe to say that what happened at Pearl Harbor is one of the most important events of the 20th century. And that 80th anniversary is tomorrow. And so there's a number of commemorations planned Certainly in Hawaii, where the attack happened on the memorial for the USS Arizona, which, of course, was the battleship that uh, was sunk there and suffered the highest amount uh, of lost life. 1,100 men uh, were killed when that ship exploded. And there's parades and a whole number of things. And certainly, if you turn on the television, you'll find a number of commemorative documentaries, shows about that, survivor accounts, all those things uh, as part of that commemoration. So I thought I would talk a little bit Uh, about it today and kind of add my own voice to that, uh, if you will, uh, by kind of bringing in a little bit of a different perspective. I'm sitting here in the studio with a big, um, what is this? This is a, uh, the word escapes me. It is a scrapbook. Thank you. (laughs) My my producer had to mouth it to me. It's called a scrapbook. Yes, it's a scrapbook. It's my grandmother's scrapbook. Um, my maternal grandmother kept a scrapbook of the entire Second World War, uh, mostly newspaper clippings. And uh, when the war started on December 7th, 1941, she was in Chicago. Uh, not too long later, she would join the Marine Corps and she eventually would meet my grandfather, another Marine, 
there, and that's they got married there, and the rest, as they say, is history. But she kept a scrapbook of uh, the war, starting with uh, newspaper ads or newspaper articles from the evening edition of the Chicago Tribune on December 7th, 1941, talking about the attack, and pretty much continues it all the way through. And it's a really interesting thing to look at. So, uh, But I'm going to tease you with that because i got to give you a little bit of background first before we get to what's actually in this thing because uh, it's quite interesting between these two things. So here's the thing with remembrance. Remembrance of historical events, particularly the further they get from us, and this is 80 years now, it gets tricky because when we remember something, what are we actually remembering? Is it just the event and all of its detail and everything? Not likely. Chances are the first thing we think about is what the event meant at the time to those who went through it. And then, more often is the case, after that, the messaging that came out of it, its resulting actions and the lessons that we learned from it. That tends to be what we remember. Certainly, this, the attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II, a war that had already been going on for quite some time in Asia. The Japanese had invaded into China fully in 1937. And in Europe, of course, Hitler had been on the rampage uh, in Europe since 1939. So it brought the U.S. in. And that's, a, that's one of the primary reasons why I remember it. It's also remembered because it was a surprise attack. Uh, and it came out of nowhere, and, or at least that's the, that's the story, that it came out of nowhere. And, of course, because President Roosevelt, in his speech to Congress on December 8th, the day after the attack, asking for a declaration of war, referred to it as a date which will live in infamy. December 7th. And of course, infamy is a powerful word. That doesn't just mean famous or noteworthy. It's a state of being well known for some bad quality or deed. (laughs) So, and certainly uh, from his point of view, as well as from the point of view of uh, almost every American at the time, this was an act of infamy because the Japanese had attacked without warning. At least that had been the understanding at the time. And it's true, but not quite true. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. What is often not remembered, though, remembrance is selective, and that, to a certain degree, that can't be avoided. Uh, But what isn't remembered is often the most instructive once we decide to look at it. And oftentimes, when we start taking a look at the details and put ourselves back in the history of what could be known at the time, it starts to take the black and white nature of things in history and kind of graze it out a little bit more. And so the primary narrative about what happened at Pearl Harbor is this, that the Japanese struck the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, the headquarters for the Pacific Fleet, out of the blue, entirely unexpected by the U.S. There was no declaration of war. And that was deemed, of course, maybe the most treacherous part of the whole thing, right? It wasn't somebody stepping up for a fair fight. It was a sucker punch is kind of how it was remembered. And the idea was that the Japanese had hoped to wipe out the U.S. Pacific Fleet right at the outset of the war to prevent the United States from being able to project its naval power across the Pacific while Japan expanded its empire in China, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, throughout all the Pacific Islands. And the idea was by the time the United States recovered from what was hopefully this massive blow, they would take a look at the map of everything Japan controlled and just say, ah, it's not worth it. It was a miscalculation on the part of the Japanese. And some of them knew it, actually. Uh, But that's a story for another day. Uh, It's also remembered, when we think about it, that the entire country shifted on a dime immediately from a very pro-isolationist standpoint that had dominated American discourse, stay out of the wars if at all possible, that it shifted in just a day to let's win this war as fast as possible in the name of human freedom, of American liberty, that type of thing. 
Usually, the proof of this is the fact that only one member of Congress in the Senate or the House of Representatives, uh, Jeanette Rankin of Montana, voted against going to war. So that meant that, as represented, all, um, almost all Americans wanted to go to war with Japan. And therefore, the assumption is they all had the same reasons <laughs> and they all had the same motives and they all felt the same about it. That's not necessarily true. Okay? But nevertheless, that is usually how it's remembered. Now, those are simplifications, right? So let's, let's talk a little bit about what we do know. And it's worth remembering that after the attack happened, information like we have now was not available to the American public. It wasn't available to the media. It certainly uh, wasn't always going to be available even to members of government because the primary concern after the attack was if, he, if the government shared all the details with the American people about what had happened, it was going to tell the Japanese what they wanted to know. How successful were they at Pearl Harbor? What was going on? So there was an automatic kind of hushing down of the details of what had happened at Pearl Harbor. In fact, the details wouldn't fully be known until the war was over. And so there was a lot of speculation about what had gone on at the time. And so what I'm about to tell you now is all stuff that we've learned in the many years since then. And certainly the attack has been one of the most researched events of the Second World War. All right, so let's rewind real quick. On December 7th, 1941, about 4 a.m. Hawaiian time, 230 miles north of Oahu. Uh, it was in one of the least traveled areas of the Pacific Ocean, a massive Japanese naval fleet comprised of six aircraft carriers and a number of other uh, heavy Navy ships with hundreds of planes and pilots, all of them experienced from several years of war in China. They began the process of launching aircraft to attack Pearl Harbor. The fleet had left Japan, the Kuril Islands in the north, on November 26th. Under strict radio silence, they didn't use search planes ahead of the fleet for fear of giving away their position. And the idea was they were going to strike without being detected. And by the time December 7th, 4 a.m. rolled around, they were pretty sure, but not convinced, they had pulled that off. Two waves of planes were planned, 180 planes each, all of them armed with bombs or torpedoes or armor-piercing shells. The idea was to sink as many ships in the harbor, particularly the American aircraft carriers, the number one target, as much as possible. Because the idea was if you sink them, you're not going to be able to project power across the Pacific. So that was the goal. By 5 a.m., the first wave was beginning to launch and to assemble to fly south. The Japanese had chosen a Sunday on purpose. It was a day that was going to probably be the most leisurely for the American Navy, uh, which turned out to be true. And so they thought that would contribute to the surprise, and it turned out to be the case. However, there were indicators in retrospect that an attack was coming okay, at Pearl Harbor. It had been known for a long time that Japan and the United States were probably going to go to war with one another, at least as far back as 1940, um, even though there were rumblings as early as uh, the mid-1930s that this might happen. In 1940, after France fell to the Nazis, all their colonial possessions were up for grabs, the same for Holland, and of course that included Southeast Asia and Indonesia. So the Japanese wanted to move into those areas to grab their natural resources to keep building their navy, their army, and their empire. When that happened, the United States slapped embargoes on oil as well as on scrap metal, two things that Japan desperately needed for their, for their war machine, and said, we're not going to give that to you anymore. That pushed the Japanese, to varying degrees, to decide that maybe the best way to handle a war with the Americans was to start it first and give them a knockout blow right away um, and reduce the chances of, of Japan losing. Now, the military, which effectively controlled the government, 
is the one who ended up making this decision. And so not long after that embargo, the Navy started planning the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. And so all of that, of course, <laughs> led to this fleet being off the coast of Hawaii, hoping it hadn't been uh, detected. The atmosphere had gotten worse over the previous years, years leading up to this day. And there were some concerns. U.S. intelligence had lost track of this fleet two weeks prior to them leaving from Japan. All the ships had been in various parts of Japan. They all sailed to the Kuril Islands in the north to meet together, and U.S. intelligence lost track of them. And the more time went by, the more that concerned them, and they notified all the branches of government. That could mean wherever that Japanese fleet showed up that Japan was about to attack American possessions, and they were going to start a war. So people knew a war was coming. The big thing was nobody was expecting Pearl Harbor to get hit. Okay, they didn't think the Japanese had the ability or the desire to go that far. So they were expecting things like the Philippines, maybe Guam or Wake Island to be hit instead. Okay, and so with all of that in mind, uh, U.S. intelligence got increasingly nervous. Commanders in Hawaii did took some preparation. So like the Army Air Commanders in Hawaii put all the airplanes um, on the various airfields, Wheeler Field, Bellows Field, Kaneohe Naval Air Station, out in the middle of the runways and taxiways so they could be more easily guarded and not fall prey to saboteurs. There was concern that there might be Japanese agents among the significantly high Japanese population in Hawaii, and there were a few. They were worried about sabotage, so they put them in the middle of the field. Unfortunately, what happened in, when the attack came is that the Japanese pilots showed up and saw all these planes lined up nicely in a row for them to strafe and bomb and destroy. And ultimately, at the end, 170 American aircraft were destroyed that day. In part, that was why. Also, the Navy sent the aircraft carriers, the big targets for the Japanese, there were three of them in the Pacific at the time, out uh, to do several things, to reinforce various positions at Wake, Midway, with new squadrons, with equipment, that type of thing, and then also to run maneuvers in case war did start. So as it turned out, when the attack happened, none of those three carriers were in the harbor, which turned out to be really important. And had it been otherwise, the war itself may have gone quite differently. The Japanese might have actually gotten closer to their target. But nevertheless, that's what happened. So with all of that, <laughs> there were concerns that a war was about to begin. Okay, so it was a myth that suddenly this came out of nowhere. Um, and even on the day of the attack, even in the 24 hours leading up to the, the attack, there were signs that there was something coming. And maybe something coming from Pearl, for Pearl, I should say. First of all, in Washington, there was information that the Japanese embassy was receiving orders from Japan, from the government, to cut off diplomatic relations. That is usually the precursor to a declaration of war. And so the U.S. government knew this was coming. The negotiators for the Japanese government, however, who were always meeting with the Secretary of State, were not told what was happening. So they thought they were negotiating in good faith with the United States to avoid war. Turns out they were duped just like everybody else. But there was, they knew something was happening. And certainly bases in the Pacific were on alert, but again, nobody was thinking about Pearl Harbor. But then, on the night of December 6th, the night before, U.S. intelligence intercepted a transmission from the Japanese asking somebody in Hawaii, one of their agents probably, to give an update on where ships were in the harbor. And the idea was they were probably trying to find out if the carriers were there. That got lost in all the noise unfortunately, of all the false messages the Japanese were also sending out to try to obscure what they were trying to do. But, a, but that was intercepted, and nobody followed up on it. And then that morning, as the planes were gearing up north of Oahu, 
a U.S. destroyer patrolling off the mouth of Pearl Harbor discovered a Japanese midget submarine, a two-man submarine, trying to sneak into the harbor. The Japanese had brought five of those along, and they were going to sneak into the harbor and torpedo ships. That was the idea during the attack. This one showed up a little too early, got itself sunk by an American destroyer. Right, So it opened the USS Ward, opened fire on this sub, sank it, and then reported it up the chain. <laughs> Said, we got a problem here. We just sunk a sub in the, uh, in the defense zone. Unfortunately, that message died with a mid-level officer who thought it was probably an overreaction. It couldn't be that. So that was four hours before the attack started. So no warning went out there. And then about an hour before the attack, a radar point up on the north side of the island picked up a gigantic reading of planes. This was the first wave coming in from the Japanese carriers. Passed that on in an alarmed fashion <laughs> to, uh, to another officer who thought it was a flight of B-17 bombers, American bombers, that was flying in from California that day. He said, that must be them, so just let it go. Well, that didn't allow the harbor to uh, go on alert either. And so what ended up happening <laughs> with all of this is that when the Japanese arrived just before 8 a.m., uh, over a while, who they caught everyone by surprise. And by the time the attack was over, 2,400 Americans were dead. Six ships, most of them battleships, were sunk with heavy loss of life. As I mentioned, 170 planes destroyed. Uh, and 1,100 of them aboard the USS Arizona. Now, the Japanese decided not to launch a third wave to blow up things like the fuel storage depot there, uh, the dry docks where you could fix everything. Had they done that, uh, the harbor wouldn't have been usable for a year. The American fleet would have had to be based on the West Coast and it would have been much, much more difficult to fight the war. But nevertheless, that's what happened. And the Japanese, being concerned that those carriers weren't around, were worried they were just going to pop up somewhere and their own fleet was going to get bombed, and so they decided to leave. And it turned out to be a fateful decision in the end. As it turned out, one American carrier, the USS Enterprise, was only 150 miles away from Pearl Harbor to the west. And it was on its way back to the harbor, and it sent its planes back to the harbor as it normally did before it was about to come into port. And a number of them got shot at by American guns, by people who were panicking. Of course, more planes coming in. And that happened several times as more uh, fleets of planes came in from other carriers on that day. Uh, particularly at the end of the day, a number of them got shot at, and several of them were shot down by friendly fire, and some pilots were killed. This is where the part of the story kind of ends, because we then think of automatically the, the attack happens, then we think of FDR's speech the next day. But a lot went on in here that I think is worth thinking about. First of all, in Hawaii, there was panic. The newspapers the next morning not only reported about the attack, but the Honolulu Star Bulletin insisted that a Japanese invasion fleet was offshore and it was going to show up at any time. West Coast newspapers in San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, all announced that the Japanese might very well be on their way. Nobody knew where this fleet was. <laughs> we know now it was on its way back to Japan. No one at the time knew where it was. And so my grandmother's scrapbook has all these articles about, for example... Entire Pacific Northwest area blacked out. All radios ordered silenced. That's on December 7th, the evening. In New York City, all Japanese ordered to stay indoors. Stay home till status is decided, says Mayor LaGuardia. That's in New York. Right. Los Angeles, San Diego went on blackout alert, concerned that the Japanese would attack at night. Uh, um, the fact that this happened as a surprise attack it was trumpeted in the press uh, immediately. 
Uh, but all of these things about what was about to happen dominated the American press, those stories, for the next week. And while some newspapers like the Tribune rightfully said that a group of Japanese militarists had decided to declare war on, Jap- on the Japanese people's behalf on the United States, early on in the week, that was the narrative. By the end of the week, things were whipped into such a fervor and there was such a deep amount of fear because nobody knew where this fleet was. Nobody knew what was about to happen next. They were surprised by the shock of the attack that that whole idea of the militarists being the problem had been steadily extended to all Japanese being the problem. By the end of the week, there were already conversations happening, not just in the press, but in the halls of the U.S. government of maybe interning all Japanese Americans along the West Coast and in Hawaii because of concerns around sabotage or where were these spies or that type of thing. And of course, ultimately, that's that's what ended up happening in all of this. But it's that week after where there was very little information about what was going on. Some of the most important decisions made about the war, what it meant, what had happened at Pearl Harbor, how everybody was supposed to respond. These were all the decisions made when there was the least amount of information. And I'm not talking just on the governmental side, but in the public perception side. And that, I think, is one of the lessons that I'm wondering if we can reflect on and what we can learn from it today. This isn't just about 80 years ago, right? We've seen it even recently, right? Recently, 20 years ago now, (laughs) okay? After September 11th, very similar thing, right? A surprise attack, everybody shocked, everyone upset, not a whole lot of detail, a lot of speculation, a lot of words written, a lot of time uh, by talking heads talking on TV, And people deciding what it all meant. And certainly hearkening back to Pearl Harbor was one of the first historical precedents people went to. This is just like Pearl Harbor. It was a surprise attack. These people have no character. We have to go to war against them to defend ourselves. And certainly, you know, wanting to defend oneself is certainly a country's right. right? And that's certainly not the question here. However, by the end of that week after September 11th, it was already being talked about as an upcoming war on terror. That was not really a conversation. It was just sort of a decision. And there was very little information still available to the public about what had actually happened, where all this had come from. Yet really, really important decisive decisions were made in public perception on the basis of that. So it is not something that is just unique to what happened after Pearl Harbor. It is something that is a part of, seemingly a part of our immediate reactive DNA. When we do not have the information that we desire, particularly when fear is up, anger is up, confusion is up, our brains love to fill in that information with something to make sense of it. That can be some facts. It can be a misunderstanding of facts. It can be speculation. It can be conspiracy theories. It can be all these things that we want to give us meaning when maybe, just maybe, there isn't any at the moment. The fact of the matter is, in that week after Pearl Harbor, nobody except the Japanese knew where the Japanese were going to go next. It's that simple. The United States had been caught by surprise, and not just the government, the people. The United States had wanted to stay out of this war for two years and had been very, very clear about that. Even though FDR and others thought it was inevitable, they did not have public support for this. When the attack happened at Pearl Harbor... It is an open question. To what degree was this a huge shift in that moment and how much of it was fury that the United States had been caught unawares? How much of it was that they had been caught unawares by somebody they didn't think could be that strong of an enemy? That might be part of it too. And to what degree 
it was that anger and that fear the catalyst for everything that came afterwards, for how the United States conducted the war. Certainly, it's up to American leaders. It was at the time and it is today. When big things like that happen, to stay as much as possible above the fray, make hopefully informed decisions on the information that the rest of us maybe don't have, and then act accordingly and hopefully explain to us why they're doing it. That happened to a certain degree in the Second World War, but not as much as people think. And that, a lot of that didn't come until later. Okay? And so when I look at my grandmother's scrapbook and I see all these articles about invasion fleets off the coast of Hawaii, they were never there, by the way. There was no invasion fleet. That the fleet was going to show up and uh, shell San Diego, that never happened. Or the Panama Canal, that never happened. Uh, reports that the fleet was sailing southward, that never happened. Uh, all, all these different reports of Guam and the Philippines, Yes, they were under attack, but they hadn't been seized yet. There was so much information flying around that nobody knew was true or not. And yet, because they were in the papers and all of that, people responded to them as if they were. And so the problem isn't what I'm saying here, isn't necessarily the media. It takes a very basic level of media literacy to understand that the media is figuring these things out, too, as they happen. (laughs) And putting out interpretations with what they know when they know. And the thing about history is, is it takes a while for these things to be known. It takes a while for the effects of them to be understood. They cannot be anticipated at the time. They have to sort of be seen more and more in retrospect or when the collective body politic has a chance to breathe, calm down, process what's happened. Just the same as it is with anything that we do individually when we have a trauma or anything like that. Usually settling down is the first good thing to do. And so I'm really struck by what all these articles say. My grandmother, this is a great snapshot of how she must have felt. All this information, this flood of information. There's like 16 pages here on Pearl Harbor. And almost every single article I'm looking at, history has proven to be wrong. (laughs) That by itself is really interesting. And that's okay because it was speculation at the time. There was shock at the time, uncertainty, all those things. And in that sense, this scrapbook is itself a reminder for all of us. That in those big, big things, a little bit of circumspection (laughs) and keeping calm and recognizing that we aren't going to have all the answers yet when we want them um, might be the most important thing we can do. And that's on us. That's not on the media. That's not on anybody else. Okay, I'm already out of time. I could keep going on this. Maybe I will some other time. But nevertheless, I'm really glad you joined me for this episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for uh, going into a little bit of a history party with me. And uh, until I see you next week, I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. And until then, chins up, everyone. <laughs>